Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. When a problem escalates to the higher ranks of the church, they don't send somebody from the First Presidency, they send their lawyers. Anyone can be sacrificed on that altar. Anyone can be made expendable. The number one thing inside of the church is that the church's image always has to be preserved, Mm -hmm. period, no matter what. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions and organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're listening only and you would prefer to see our faces, head on over to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can see the whole thing. You can like, subscribe, hit the bell so you don't miss an episode, and leave us your comments. And if you recommend a guest that we end up having on the show, we will feature your comment. So today's guest is someone who, if not for this thing happening in his ward where a bishop was convicted of child sexual abuse within the ward, if that hadn't happened and he went down the rabbit hole and a bunch of different things and then ended up using his legal skills to kind of unpack Mormonism, we would not be here today. So I'm really excited to welcome to the show Colby Reddish. Hi, Shalise. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Talk about the steps of deconstruction that were personal to you that will most definitely be applied to other people who may be watching or listening. I have so much compassion and so much um, love for friends and family members who are still members of the church. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why we wanted to start and talk about the stages of deconstruction, because I think it's important from the ex-Mormon or post-Mormon space to recognize that I think what we really want from the people in our lives who are still inside of the church is really just understanding. And we need to remember that that street can really only go two ways. If we really want to feel understood, then we need to um to steel man their position to understand the reasons that they stay active in the church and and do that with as much compassion as we can yeah and it's so synchronistic that we're here today and i want to bring this up because you did a four hour well two parts three hours in like maybe an hour and a half episode on mormon stories which we will link here um And yesterday at work, I just randomly turned on Mormon stories and I saw that there was this episode that I started listening to exactly one year ago and hadn't finished. So I just hit play. And then when I was looking for a guest and I had remembered you from a thread that we were on previously, I was like, hey, yeah, do you want to record? And you told me, yeah, you can watch my Mormon stories episode. I looked it up and it was the same episode and it blew my mind. (laughs) And I was like, oh, my gosh, we absolutely need to talk. There is no question about it that the universe, God, whatever, is bringing us here today to talk. So if anyone is interested in that episode, you can go to Mormon Stories. And you also did an episode with Radio Free Mormon, three episodes, right? A three-part series? We did. And I do have to give um, our first episode. So it's Radio Free Mormon episodes 259, 260, and 260. Two, because for some reason, RFM had to release one right in the middle, so we couldn't have a series of three. But the episode 259 actually won the best single ex-Mormon podcast Brody Award of the last year, which is kind wow. of Wow. 
Congrats. That's amazing. Yeah. That's really cool. Are those on YouTube? If they're on YouTube, I'll also link them. They are. Yes. All three are on YouTube. So if you want to listen to me talk about Mormonism for 10 hours after <laughs> listening for this hour with Shalise, uh, you can enjoy way too long of my voice that was definitely um, not made for radio. <laughs> No, I think it's great. Well, let's dive into it. The reason that you started looking into everything was not because a bishop had sexually abused a child, which is awful, let me just say. It was the way that they mishandled it, and they weren't continuing to protect the other children in the ward, and it's a long, grueling story that is just so hard to hear, but I'm so happy that you came forward to talk about it and shed light on it. So, that had happened with you and your wife, and that kind of got you to start looking into other things, right? So do you want to take us through that progression of the deconstruction? Yeah, I think I'll just say that for those who want to go listen to that Mormon Stories interview, I think what really changed things was that as the stake and um, the ward leaders after that uh, Bishop had been arrested, started to respond and address the concerns. We really felt like they were not addressing them sufficiently. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it's completely fair to say that it was like a cover up. And I know that those stories have been told. It was more just not best practices. So I think an important part of what prepared me for that moment or to respond in the way I did in that moment is that I had previously worked as a deputy criminal prosecutor for our biggest county inside of Idaho. And so I had worked and received some training in working with victims of crimes and particularly with victims of that type of abuse, not, not to the level that, you know, someone with a PhD in clinical and counseling psychology or who's specialized in social work would do, but it is something that we definitely are aware of as prosecutors as we look to prosecuting those types of crimes. And so that's really where my um, meetings as I would meet with the stake president one-on-one -on -one and once with my wife, um, when we would have these meetings, that's really where I was coming from is just that I believed the church should be following the best practices on informing other members um, because this individual had not only been a bishop, they'd been in other you know, callings that would have given them exposure to youth. And so I felt like everyone had a right to know that kind of in a nutshell, mm -hmm. um, not to really editorialize, but just to tell people that like, hey, your kids were with this person, maybe interviewed by this person behind closed doors. You have a right to know that these charges have been filed and really just leave it at that. That was really my, um, my point of view. And there were some other people who shared that point of view. Um, things became a little bit more heated when there were some emails that went out after the stake really kind of refused to address things in that way. Um, and I didn't actually even start that. I just responded to one of the emails. But that's where things got really difficult. I think the one thing I would just say is that Cami and I decided to um, send emails to basically speak up, to use our voice and say we don't agree with the way this is happening only after we really, really searched our hearts and prayed. Like it took a whole 24 hours for us to decide to, to take that course of action. And um, there, I've never been more sure that anything was the right path to take. Um, it's alongside with, you know, praying about marrying my wife, praying to go on a mission, praying to feel previously like the Book of Mormon, whether or not the Book of Mormon was true. 
And so those spiritual feelings were just as strong about taking the course that really ultimately led me to where we are today. I think as the church then responded to some of those emails and we sent letters to Salt Lake about some of their policies and what we would hope they would change some of those policies to, or at least consider changing, um, it did really allow us to set aside our conditioning and go through stages of deconstruction. But I think one of the things I wanted to share we're going to go back in time a little bit, right? So if we're if we're thinking about how can I understand my still believing friends and family, or how do I hope my still believing friends and family understand me, I think it's important to remember that all of us are an amalgamation of stories, experiences, events that have happened in our lives. And so what I wanted to start with, and we'll see how much time it takes, is kind of tell some of the stories that led me to where we ended up. Um, at least until we appeared on Mormon stories, like stories from the time I was a little kid, I was a youth. And I think those stories are important to recognize that deconstruction or even construction is, it goes through phases. Mm -hmm. And that um, if we really want to understand each other, that we need to understand these stories and deal with these stories. Yeah. How does that sound? That sounds great. So what's your first one? So the first story we're going to talk about is the story of Jesus and Peter walking on the water. That is a story that I'd heard all the time since I was a young kid in primary. And so it really starts when I was about five, six, maybe seven. And I was told so often in primary that if I believed like Peter, that I could walk on the water. And so I want to picture, um, I want you, Shalise, to picture little Colby. He's six <laughs> years old, takes things very literally, right? Because everyone really everyone I knew in my life at that point was Mormon, some, some form of Mormon, even if they didn't go, they were raised that way. And so I really believed fully that this was reality. So what I would do is without telling anybody, I would constantly, when we were at pools or at the <laughs> ocean, I would try and step and take that leap of faith Aww. and see if I could walk on water. <laughs> That's so cute. Yeah, and it never worked. Uh, just for the record, I never, <laughs> I never even like slightly hovered above the water. Um, but I think the the part of that story that's important is that when it didn't work, I didn't blame the theology. I didn't blame the doctrine. I didn't think, well, the story of Jesus and Peter then isn't true. I instead blamed myself or wondered if there was something wrong with me because the story wasn't working. The story I'd been told was reality wasn't working for me. Yeah. Oh, that poor little six-year-old just like doing his best. But it really, it speaks to the, the indoctrination of kids at a young age and teaching them that they're not just perfect the way that they are, that they have to earn the love they have to earn worthiness and they have to do all of these things in order to be good in the eyes of god and you're just a little kid and that's it sounds very uh matrix <laughs> like you just have to believe and then, <laughs> and then it'll work yeah definitely <laughs> when did you stop trying to walk on water man i am gonna say i was distressingly older than i should have been <laughs> to stop trying to walk on water but I think an important part of the story is that like I was doing this in secret, right? So I wouldn't, 
the the language I would use today is is basically me trying to act as an empiricist, trying to gather evidence, even though I didn't have any of this language, right? I had been told these stories and I was trying to apply these stories in my own life. And I was starting to recognize that at least that part of the story, that there was no evidence behind it. And I think that's that's really a preview of the next several stories we're going to talk about is that I was putting these stories that I was told sometimes completely in private to the test. And these are all the times I would say that the tests, you know, the tests that I received from Mormonism let me down or failed mm-hmm. in some way. And so I think the important part to understand about the deconstruction stages is that you know, you can't understand the experiences someone has been through in their own life that have either confirmed or hindered their faith. And so you kind of end up at this place where it feels like the only way to go forward is this almost like foregone conclusion. Like when you've had all these experiences that I've had, or if I were to, you know, I've listened to quite a few of your episodes, but if I were to really listen to every single little story that's been formative to who you are, I really think that for the vast majority of people, they are just doing the best they can to make the best decision with the tools they've been given. And these stories mm-hmm. are our tools, right? These are the reality of our lives. Yeah. Oh, okay. So then what was the next thing that you can think back to that made you start to question? Yeah. So my next story, uh, I wish it were a little happier. Um, so when I was eight years old, my mother's dad uh, died after having had kidney disease and had to have a kidney transplant. He he just was sick a lot of the time. So I was eight when he died. And I don't tell this story very often. I don't think I've ever told it publicly before. But the mm. last time I saw him, because he died a little bit unexpectedly, um, the last time I saw him was at a 24th of July Pioneer Day celebration where, um, you know, they lived on the other side of the state. And so we would grow up going to my grandma and grandpa's for Thanksgiving. I know we went for Christmas one time. And so I didn't see this grandpa as much as I did my other grandparents, which lived in town. And at this 24th of July celebration, um, I remember we were going to some other family member, like a more distant relation. We were going to their house and I got to ride with grandma and grandpa just myself because I was the oldest grandkid. And so I got that privilege of doing that. And for some reason at this family event, um, this would have been in the 90s. So like hacky sacks were all the thing, right? And um, one of the older kids was kicking around a hacky sack. And I asked grandpa if on the way home, we could get hacky sack for me. And he said that, yeah, we would stop by the store and we would do that after the party. And I was, if I was good, right, there was that condition. Yeah. And I was super happy about that. And I really, really wanted this hacky sack. Like I was just eight. I was eight. I was just a kid, right? And um, when we get to the store after the family party, the store was closed. And so what did I decide to do? I decided to be a sulky little eight-year-old and be very upset. And I think I remember saying, something to the effect of that grandpa had lied. And that was the last interaction I had with my grandpa ever. And the point is that when he died, it wasn't until about four years later when I would have been 12, maybe 13. And I was really learning about the powers 
um, of the Aaronic priesthood, according to Joseph Smith. And one of those powers is to receive the ministering of angels or to have the power of the ministering of angels. And I remember very specifically, again, I did this all by myself. Like it wasn't something that my parents would have even known about at the time, but my dad at the time would have had some type of calling that required him to be in the church. I know he wasn't at the bishopric uh, or in the bishopric at that point, but I think he was like an executive secretary. And so I went with dad this one night to the church and um, he had to do some work in the office and I was completely alone in an adjoining classroom. And I remember just playing the song that had played at my grandpa's funeral, really trying to connect with my grandpa and asking God simply just for the chance to apologize. Sorry, just for the chance to apologize to him and to tell him how much I loved him. Because if we can receive the ministering of angels, that was what I really, really wanted at that time in my life was to feel like I had not ended things with him in a bad way. And I prayed and prayed for what felt like hours. I'm sure it can't have been that long because I'm sure no one would leave a 12 year old unsupervised in the church for that long. But I know it was a considerable amount of time of trying to connect with the divine praying and hoping for some type of experience that never came. Mm. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Uh, That's one of the things that bothers me about religious institutions or high demand groups is they make all of these promises to their members, especially children. And they say, if you do this, you'll get that. And a lot of times the reward is something that you don't see until after you die, which is kind of interesting. But sometimes it is like with Mormonism, it is something that you should be able to see the results of immediately. And when you don't get those those results, you think that it's you. You think that it, you did something wrong, that you weren't worthy enough. And that's what's really heartbreaking is it's very manipulative. And just imagining you as a young child trying to do that, trying to do the best that he can because you've been promised these things and not getting any results is just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And you can see, you know, not to, not to just put a fine point on what you're saying, but this was 20 years ago. And you can see the fact that I still can't really talk about it without getting at least a little bit emotional. And people who know me know that I'm a very detached from my emotions kind of person, very logical. Um, And that, yeah, that caused a lot of pain to basically have this promise made. And again, just like the first story, you're absolutely right. I did not I did not look to the church and say, you failed me. I still believed because everyone in my life believed that the church was true and that those promises were true. I believe that there was something wrong with the way I was trying to make that propitiation or trying to make that connection, or even that something was wrong with me personally, um, something that I had no control over. Yeah. Yeah. That's hard. Um, Okay. So you're, 12 or 13, what was the next thing that you can clock that made you question? Yeah, I think the next big thing, and this one isn't as much of a story time, but the next big thing is that I grew up in um, like right outside of Boise. And so we have a really, really high Mormon population. Um, Mm -hmm. And my next big deconstruction step was simply just making non-Mormon friends. Like I feel like even though my parents were great examples of loving and serving everybody, they always have been and been very accepting of other people. 
the doctrine that you're taught, particularly if you're someone who likes to read a lot as a kid, which I did, you start to connect with this doctrine in a way that feels good as a young kid because it's so black and white, right? So specifically the church I had, I remember having hostile feelings towards because it's right in the Book of Mormon was the Catholic church. And so I remember the first time I really talked beliefs with a member of, of the Catholic church. And I recognized that even though I had this um, built-in bias against their belief or against um, them as a person, and, and I'm talking about the same age, like 12, 13, maybe 14, I recognized that as I talked to them, as I saw their families, as I interacted with them, as I became actual friends with them, I couldn't believe what the church was telling me about people of other faiths. And I think the best example, even though he said it probably in the most offensive way possible, it is ultimately the church's doctrine is the way that Brad Wilcox put it mm. that last year that, that members of other faiths are playing church. And that was the way I felt as a kid. I felt like that was the message I received, not just from um, teachers at church, but specifically from the scriptures. Like when Joseph Smith puts into the words or puts the words into the mouth of Christ, that Jesus Christ, you know, views all of the creeds, all the other creeds as an abomination and that he views uh, their professors as being all corrupt and people draw near to their lips. Like, I don't see any other way for kids to like take that aside from that you know, we are the one true church. We have the fullness of the gospel. Those were things I heard every fast and testimony meeting. And so it did give me this bias against other people that again, when I put it to the test and I really got to know them, it just didn't hold up. Yeah. I know I've, I've talked about this before. It's the us versus the mentality where you feel mm -hmm. superior to those who are not in the church. And even though it may be a righteous superiority where like, oh no, I want to help you because I know more than you. It's still a superiority complex at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, totally. And it's, I will give Mormonism the pat on the back that it's more, um, it's more universalist than like a typical Christian conception of what the afterlife looks like. But it's still, even then, it's still wrapped in this giant appropriation, right? It's like, you will ultimately either convert, <laughs> assimilate, or you won't, and you will end up in a lower kingdom. And so it is the message, like whether it's in this yeah. life or the next, that you will have to accept the truth of Mormonism. So my next story, we actually shift to when I'm on my mission. So I actually left on my mission a little bit late. There's stories behind that, but it's not going to be full story time, I promise. So <laughs> I'll just say that I left on my mission right about the time I was 21. And one of the first people that I taught was a former member of the Jehovah's Witness faith. Uh, she's mm. an African American. She was fantastic. I'll just call her Kim. I think it says a lot that my companion and I taught Kim. She had a baptismal date. And she was all ready to go. I thought she was just like die hard, you know, thought everything that we were teaching her was true and that it resonated with her. We had an experience where I think just a few days before she was supposed to get baptized, she had gotten, you know, at the time we would have said she got anti. Now I would say someone just told her the truth about the church. But <laughs> what they told her about was... <laughs> 
what they told her about specifically was the priesthood ban. And as, you know, a black person in the country, she was being asked, why in the world would you join this church that didn't allow people full, you know, full unfettered membership until relatively recently, right? It would have been, I think, yeah. um, she would have had been born before the priesthood ban was lifted. That was about her age. And I think that experience to me, as I listened to Kim and I tried kind of like my rudimentary apologetics of just like, well, we just don't know, because that's always where I went with trying to explain that away. Um, I was struck by two things, and especially now as I look back. The first was, I think it's absurd that I didn't feel the need as a missionary to have, like, I didn't have the cultural competency I do today to recognize that, like, hey, this is a member of this group that my church has treated differently. And I probably need to, you know, advance this myself and like explain to them that this is part of the church's history. So it's not like we necessarily decided actively not to teach her about the fact that the priesthood and temple ban existed. I think it just speaks to really the privilege you have if you come from a majority Mormon area that you re- that's not very diverse is that you really don't have to think about it. That was yeah. my privilege, even as a young 20 year old person, like I should have been aware that this was an issue and at least tried to do my best to, to teach about it um, with the best information I had at the time, but I didn't even do that. Right. So it's this awakening of privilege. And then I think the second thing that really resonated with me at the time, and even more so as I look back, is that as I listened to her explain, as we tried to say like, no, 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 it wasn't about racism because that was the the party line at the time, right? We don't know why. Um, what I was really struck by is when she said like, you guys, I really like you. I think I, I really like the Book of Mormon, but I just can't get baptized in a church that treated people like me differently. I, I can never do that. I was just struck by feeling so much compassion for her and understanding fully that, yeah, you know what? If I was in her shoes, I would do the exact same thing. And so it really was this moment of recognizing that there are legitimate reasons for people either to leave or to not join the church. That was pretty, that was pretty nuanced, I think, for someone who was just starting out their mission to not feel like it was the only designated way that people can enjoy their lives. Yeah, it's pretty awesome that you had that realization because I don't think I even had that realization until I left because in my mind, I I always thought, well, no matter what, it's the true church. Like even if there's some things that they did wrong or things don't really make sense, it's God's true church. So obviously I'm going to belong to it, which is also a really privileged way of thinking because I didn't have to face any of the hardships or the issues like the LGBTQ plus community had to face or people of color or anything like that, those marginalized groups. I was just like, it's fine. (laughs) And I, I didn't even allow myself to recognize that people may be having different experiences who the church obviously does horrible things to. And so it's really great that you're able to see and admit that at a young age, even when you are still believing. Yeah. And I think it did make my mission a lot easier on me in the sense that missions are 
depending on your personality, like they can teach you a lot of great skills. They can also give you a lot of trauma and damage. And I think yeah. having gone through that experience, like I said, this was one of the first investigators I ever taught on my entire mission. And so having gone through that experience, I think allowed me to meet people where they were with more compassion, with more grace, at least as much as I could as a missionary. I'm sure that there were still people I annoyed with how dogmatic I was. Um, but that <laughs> that experience was super important for me in recognizing that people can leave the church for very legitimate reasons. And it carried through, you know, one of my best uh, childhood friends has actually been on your podcast. Uh, he runs the True Mormon Quotes channel. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And I've been listening since he was on. And um, <laughs> I remember, you know, when he left the church a few years before I went through my faith crisis, I really did not treat him any differently. I mean, he could correct the record if he wants, but I really did believe that he was doing what he thought was best and that I knew that there were a ton of people who left the church for legitimate reasons. Um, and I think that stage was very, very important for me to not just other everyone who had left the church and be willing to listen to their perspective. I'm wondering, because you knew that there were legitimate reasons that people would leave the church, why was it that at that point you didn't decide to look into those reasons further? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm going to give you the most honest answer I can, which is I did not have the time or the headspace. So the mm. God, and that's where my, uh, the chronology I think becomes important. The gospel topics essays don't start re releasing until 2012. My wife and I got married in 2012. I became a father in 2013, the same mm. year I started attending law school. And so no exaggeration, while I was in law school, I was a full-time student working three jobs, new father. We ended up having uh, our second, the first year that I was in law school, the summer of wow. the first year. And so the reality is, um, you know, as much as my friend and I would sometimes talk about it, or I'd sometimes talk to people who'd left the church. I just, it, frankly, it was what was working for me at the time. And I really didn't think too much about the truth claims because I was just at my wits end to get everything else in my life that needed to get taken of, um, taken care of. And that's where, that's where, you know, I would remind people who are in this post-Mormon space that having a faith crisis, having the space to go through a faith crisis is a form of privilege. Like there are mm -hmm. people who will never be able to leave the church, whether it's due to the makeup of their family, their, um, like their profession. Um, and it's really not for us to, to judge the reasons why people stay. I know that's, even though I think the church is demonstrably false, I really try and remind myself that there are things I probably believe that are also demonstrably false. <laughs> and so we need to have as much compassion for those people as we can. Beautifully spoken. It is so relatable. And right when you said that, I was like, yeah, that was my story too. I was first confronted with things in high school, senior year of high school. And I was like, nope, not going to go there until a few years later in college. And it's because I did have the space and the time to really deconstruct because going through a faith crisis is not easy. It does take up a lot of your time. It completely 
just unravels your whole life as you know it and you have to put it back together again. So yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up because it is extremely difficult and not everyone has, like you said, the time or space to do that. So then you are, when when is your next point of deconstruction? Is it in college? Yeah. My next point would be in college. And so my I went to BYU. My undergraduate degree is in micro and molecular biology. And this is just really a simple one. But this one is as simple as taking human evolution and human genetics courses completely divorced, in my mind, the reality of Adam and Eve from reality, I guess is the best way I can put it. Like a literal Adam and Eve is completely unsustainable. And for some reason, I never went back and like connected the fact that a literal Adam and Eve is all over the Book of Mormon. Just a little maybe fun story, not so fun, but good. Um, right after we appeared on Mormon Stories, we were at a family um, a family vacation. And my brother, who at the time was still believing, he was talking about a lesson that he had taught the young men about how you don't need to believe in a literal Adam and Eve to find value in the story. And that I agree with. There's value in the story and looking at this archetype of, of who, hum- who humanity is um, that can be gained from that story and viewing it even as a metaphor. But the problem for Mormonism is that the literal Adam and Eve is all over the Book of Mormon. Like one of the yeah. deepest chapters is Second Nephi two, and it's it just goes on and on about the the reality of the fall. And it's really difficult to argue that you can square a metaphoric or a symbolic Adam and Eve with Mormonism. People try and do it. But that would be my next stage in deconstruction is actually learning how solid the evidence for human evolution is. And it, it allowed me to gain a greater perspective on science and the scientific method. Not to mention Adam and Eve is basically the entire temple ceremony, isn't it? It's like re- right. I didn't I never went, but it's like you go and you hear the story of Adam and Eve, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's very it's so unclear. Like I've asked people since who are still members, like how literal the temple ceremony is to be taken. Because it starts off with direction from Brigham Young about, you know, you're going to get these signs and tokens that you'll need to pass the angels that stand as sentinels. And I still, for the life of me, cannot get a great answer on where the literal, you know, the literal ends and the symbology begins. It's obvious mm-hmm. that there's s- symbolism all throughout the temple all throughout all types of like ritual teaching. Um, But yeah, you're absolutely right. This belief in at least a literal Adam and Eve, I think is completely inseparable from Mormonism. So I'm always confused by the people who say they make it work. The end of the story with my brother, by the way, is that me just simply asking the question like, hey, how do you believe in a non-literal Adam and Eve and still say you believe in the Book of Mormon ended up triggering his own faith crisis, which was not my intention. (laughs) whoops whoops turns out truth tends to do that um but (laughs) it turns out that you know my brother i think went through his own stages of deconstruction and he and his wife are happier than they've ever been so ends up in a good place yeah my uh next story (laughs) is also a story about a biblical patriarch and this time we turn to abraham's story so can you just 
sum up the story of Abraham and Isaac for everybody, Shalise? I wish that I had the capability of doing that, but you caught me with my pants down. I do not know the scriptures very well. <laughs> That's okay. I'm I'm happy to do it. I just Amazing. feel like I've been talking too much. No, please, please continue. <laughs> Okay, so I'll go ahead and give us a synopsis of the Abraham story. Abraham gets direction. So Abraham is told by God early in his life that he is going to father many nations, that all the all the people of this earth will be blessed through Abraham's seed. Abraham and his wife can't have a child, and she's really old. And so eventually they do conceive this child that they name Isaac. And so that's where Abraham and Isaac, the story comes from. Abraham is told one day that he needs to sacrifice Isaac. I remember now. I remember. Yeah. So he, he goes up to the mountain with Isaac to sacrifice Isaac. An angel intervenes and he doesn't. Okay. So that's the synopsis of the story. How it connects yeah. to my step of deconstruction is before my whole faith crisis triggered I taught the adult gospel doctrine in our ward for four years. So I taught it through all four of the standard works. And when I was teaching the Old Testament year and we talked about the story of Abraham, it was the first time I had ever prepped that lesson as a father. Ah. So at the time, my kid would have been about four or five. And the story hit me completely differently because, you know, church leaders hold it out all the time. Like it was such an exercise of faith for Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his son. And the bottom line for me, and I remember where I was sitting in our house. I remember writing down my notes and I remember saying to myself, I don't care if an angel appeared to me right now and said, you need to sacrifice your son. I could not do it. And I remember yeah. saying to myself, here comes the blame reversal, right? I remember saying in myself, because I didn't tell anyone at the time, I remember saying, well, I guess it's a good thing that there's a ter terrestrial kingdom because if God ever asked that of me, I couldn't do it, right? That's where my mind went. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, I remember that story now because I very clearly can see the imagery. They have this guy holding a literal knife sword above this baby. And I remember thinking, wait, what? Why would God? do something so violent and so traumatic and we're supposed to worship this all loving God. That doesn't sound very loving to me. Yeah. The Abraham story has been a big part of my post Mormon deconstruction also, because, you know, when you just get to the theology and the cosmological question of like, what came first? Did God come first? And so can God break any of his laws at any time? Or did the laws come first and God basically gained his power and wisdom from following these eternal laws? The truth is in Mormonism, there are conflicting answers to that. So I could give you scriptures that go with the one or the other, right? So if we think, and the first of those, the fact that God can change his commandments depending on the circumstance, that's what's called like divine command theory cosmology. That's something that Joseph Smith taught very clearly in the happiness letter this idea that whatsoever God commands is right, no matter what it is, even if it, even if it's in contradiction of an earlier commandment. And that mm. cosmology to me, this is, this is bringing us to today, but that cosmology to me 
is something that I cannot accept because if that was our eternal reality to just do whatever you're told at any time, I'm sure there will people who'd be like, well, why can't you just be obedient? But I'm not willing to cede that much control to a person who, a person or a being who can change the rules at any time. That, that to me is not morality. To me, morality is putting ourselves in the shoes of Abraham saying, my own internal moral code says, I will not do this to my son. I don't care who is asking it. And so that, that's my reality now is that I think moral rules are more important than who's asking us to follow them or not follow them. Yeah, I love that. And your lawyer is showing. <laughs> it's great <laughs> to have this very clear cut view of things, which is why I'm so interested to know your perspective on the truth, truth claims now that you've gone back and really given it a thorough looking at through the perspective of a lawyer. Can we jump into that? Sure. I have one more kind of connection that I want to build out. And that is, and this one will go quick. It's the idea that as I was starting my deconstruction, so this is as we're going through, my wife and I are going through all of this stuff relating to our local ward. As I really studied the history of church leaders, and I mean contemporary church leaders, and what they've said about honesty and dishonesty, I recognized that it did not accord with what I believed honesty was and what and where had I gotten that honesty? Well, it was from what the church had taught me. And what I specifically am referencing here is Elder Oaks, Dallin Oaks, who's the first president, he's in the first presidency of the church right now. He's next in line to be prophet if Russell M. Nelson dies. He gave a talk in 1994, I believe, called like Gospel Lessons on Lying, where he lays out how basically it can be permissible to not tell the whole truth to people. And he was riffing off of or building off of ideas that came from Elder Boyd K. Packer in a talk that he gave in the 80s, I believe, called The Mantle is Far, Far Greater Than the Intellect. Both of those talks were very important steps in my deconstruction and analyzing. And like you said, it's connected to this idea of thinking like a lawyer, because as I started to recognize that basically these men had laid into the public record that they were willing to lie, uh, Radio Free Mormon has said it before, and I agree with him. If someone's willing to tell you that they're going to lie to you, go ahead and believe them. Yeah. And that seems to tie back to what happened in your ward, where they weren't willing to tell the members what had happened, but in their mind, it's okay that they're keeping the truth from people because they're not actually lying about anything, right? Yeah, and I think I think if you ask those people, even some of the people who did things I disagree with in a vacuum, if that was what they wanted, I think they would be honest enough and reflective enough to say no, that they didn't want people to feel like they were covering up child abuse that happened right under their nose. But what we have in Mormonism is we have these, almost like the hierarchy of needs, we have these hierarchy of priorities. And the thing that I've really discovered as I've gone through this deconstruction and engaged with members of the church through all of this is that the number one thing inside of the church is that the church's image always has to be preserved, mm -hmm. period, no matter what. Anyone mm -hmm. can be sacrificed on that altar anyone can be made expendable if it will preserve the church's image. And so in a vacuum, I don't think those men, like if we took it out of the church context, right, or we put it in another church, I think those same men 
who I was frustrated with would agree that the behavior applied to some other group was unhealthy, that it wasn't the right course of action. But when you bring it back to our home group and you bring it back to Mormonism, well, then we start making all sorts of excuses because of these priorities. And that priority is always, number one, the church's good name. Absolutely. And I've heard that many times. And it's sad that when you do get up to the the higher ranks of the church, when a problem escalates to the higher ranks of the church, they don't send somebody from the first presidency, they send their lawyers. And it's because they don't want to get sued or they have got, gotten sued many times. And you start to realize that it's not really the first presidency running it. It's the lawyers because they know what they can and can't get away with. I think that's one of the things that stuck out to me in your Mormon Stories episode. Uh, I'm not exactly sure who you were sitting down with, but they just kept saying over and over, I cannot, I can neither confirm nor deny, I can neither confirm nor deny. And you're like, what is this? Because as a lawyer, you know, oh, they're just covering their butts. They don't really want to have a discussion with me. Absolutely. And I have one last little deconstruction thing, and then I promise I will address where we're at today as far as thinking like a lawyer. But the last one, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about making space in my heart for the reality of the LGBT experience. Because I grew up in this era where it was like like gay rights were really coming to a head. Like Proposition 8 happened while I was in college. And I remember um, being at BYU and having them try and recruit people to come work call centers to call and get people to either um, support Proposition A or members of the church to donate money. So they were hiring people on BYU's campus to call people in California and try and advocate for the church's position on gay marriage. And I remember even the time in 2008 feeling like that was so wrong. And it was again, as I became a father, as I dealt with the reality of friends of mine who've come out as LGBT, working with people who are part of that community and recognizing what, and recognizing that like they are exactly the same as me. Like I can't imagine what it's like to be gay and their experience is the same exact way. Like they're not choosing that. It's not caused by what leaders of the church have said in the past. It's a legitimate part of the human experience. And we're, we're having a really sad experience if we can't acknowledge that and have compassion for those members of our, our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Just like we were mentioning before, it's really hard to get yourself out of your comfy, cozy box when you don't have anyone around you that's struggling and you think, oh, it might not be working for someone else, but it's working for me, so it's fine. So it's really hard to put ourselves in the shoes of people who it's not working for. So yes, I 100% agree with that. And it's usually what happens is it's someone, you don't change until you have someone in your family going through something like that. And then you go, oh, this isn't okay. But it's really hard to see it otherwise because it's not affecting you. Absolutely. It's this whole idea of out of sight, out of mind, or like, it's not my kid. It's not my problem until it becomes my kid. And I really do mm -hmm. wish that members of the church would stop accepting that, um, stop accepting that excuse because we need to sit with those people. And it wasn't until I sat with those people, I heard their stories, I heard about their lived experience, that it was completely fatal to me believing that there's anything wrong with them, or that if there is a God, that he wouldn't honor their experience as much as he had mine. 
I think the one little last thing I'd say about the reality of the LGBT experience is, you know, Mormonism improves upon evangelical Christianity, according to people who are members of the church, because they say, like, well, we believe in these three different kingdoms, right? And that's true in some ways. But one of the things that if you really dig into the doctrine, um, Mormons will tell you is that the outside of the celestial kingdom, you are always going to have this regret that you could have had more. And I've heard missionaries, I've heard members refer to this as like the Mormon concept of hell is that you don't have, you haven't met your full potential. You can't be where God is. You can't be where Christ is, depending on where you end up in the system of three kingdoms. And to me, it's very interesting that the description applied to that, I think it's in Doctrine and Covenant 76, but it's in one of Joseph Smith's revelations about these three kingdoms, is that if you're outside of the celestial kingdom, you will be, and this these are the quotes, you know, separate and single forever. And that to me is the reality of people who want to stay inside of the Mormon church if they are LGBT. I think it's this great irony that we look forward and Mormonism says basically that hell is being separate and single forever. And that's what the church is expecting its LGBT members who want to remain faithful to their teachings to do. They basically created hell on earth that they expect them to live through. Again, coming back to your idea with this promise that it'll be better in some nebulous way that they really can't define in the afterlife. To me, there's this obsession with, you know, obviously there's the whole law of chastity element, this obsession with who's having sex with who. But to me, the bigger thing is just the companionship. Like my wife and I have been married for over a decade. The most fulfilling part of our relationship is not necessarily, necessarily like, the physical act of having sex. Like it is companionship. It's having someone there for you. Those are all parts of a relationship that the church asks LGBT members to sacrifice, Mm -hmm. you know, for what, for this eternal promise that things are going to be better. Like no, no one can know that no one can make that promise. Yeah, I agree. And that's why At least we can infer that is why the youth suicide rate in Utah is so high, because they think, oh, in the next life, I won't be gay. So why am I waiting around and suffering? And that's so damaging. It's so hard and frustrating and sad that this church is impressing on them that they're not okay in this life. They have to somehow fix themselves. And if they can't fix themselves, don't worry, in the next life, your, quote, affliction will be gone. And it makes me livid to even think about that. Yeah, it's really, really hard. And I I completely understand people who are members of that community, but Mormonism is also part of their community and they struggle to navigate how that's going to look. I, I have so much charity for them and I don't want to speak for their experience because if if staying inside of the church is what they feel like makes them happy, then I just hope that they get all the love and support that they need to make that work. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to tell other people how to live their lives. But I think as we move to kind of our little concluding piece here, and we talk about how, what's the biggest like pitch I could give people who want to think like a lawyer or use critical thinking and apply it to the church? I think the, the, the biggest thing, well, let me say this. We have one demonstrated way 
that we know how to make the human experience better. And that is the scientific method and enlightenment thinking. And so when I, when I use the term enlightenment thinking, I mean everything that came out of the enlightenment, rational thinking, using evidence, starting to use the scientific method. We know definitively that the human quality of life goes exponentially up as soon as that enters the scene. When before we had struggled with slavery, and obviously slavery didn't end immediately when the Enlightenment happened, but it ended up ending because of Enlightenment thinking. We have all these advances in human technology. Here's my biggest issue with religion today, is that we know definitively that human life, the human quality of life becomes better if we think like Enlightenment thinkers, if we think rationally, critically, and we require evidence for our beliefs. My fear is that religion invites us to ignore that evidence. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to tell these stories, and hopefully they resonate with people, is that I was taught from the time I was a very little kid, and never explicitly, right? And I helped teach myself these lessons. But I was taught that I need to believe these things when the evidence was telling me these things aren't true. Mm -hmm. I was taking those failures in the tests that I was getting inside of Mormonism and blaming myself for the failures rather than saying, well, hey, hang on. Maybe there's something wrong with the fact that all these tests that I've applied aren't working. Yes. And it's so interesting. I think everyone will find it interesting. Your progression from childhood without critical thinking to a lawyer who is dissecting the truth claims of Mormonism and Mormon history. It's it's really interesting to follow, and I feel like we could talk about this for hours and hours. I will link all of the other episodes below, but maybe we come back for a part two and go even deeper. We'll see. That yeah, anytime I'd be I'd be more than happy to talk about this stuff. I think there's a lot of um, great work that's happening in the post-Mormon space. And thank you, Shalise, for being part of that. I think your podcast is off to such a wonderful start. And I hope um, that I can add some value to your listeners. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And any final thoughts before we go? How can people find you and your website? Um, well, they can find my blog. I don't know how active it's going to be in the future. Uh, Mormonism on trial. That's That's solely because even though I've only been in deconstruction for about two years, you kind of reach this point where you, you get tired of talking about Mormonism, if I'm going to be completely honest. And my wife yeah. and I are just enjoying our life. So I will continue to uh, talk all things Mormonism, think all things Mormonism, as long as it is fun and rewarding for me. And the second it isn't, then I will go do other things. So if you want to find me, uh, I never told people how they can find me before. I'm not a big social media guy. If you want to find me, you will figure out how to find me. That's what my appearance on Mormon Stories has told me. I've gotten <laughs> calls at the office. I've gotten calls on my cell phone somehow. But yes, if you have any question or even any you know constructive criticism from members who are still in who think I've misstated something, please feel free to correct me. I will correct anything where I'm proven wrong, I promise. Um, so please just reach out to me and and uh, we can go from there. Beautiful. Well, your 
your sentiment on doing it until it no longer feels exciting is exactly why I have my tagline. If you'd like to join Patreon, we're going to have more fun conversations over there. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious, and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.